Thanks for being with us today. We are in, uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new with our church family, uh, we have been really just trying to come up against and to expose ourselves to the words and the teaching of Jesus. And there is nothing more that we need now in culture, now in our own present circumstances than his words. There's nothing that we need ever than to come face to face with the words of God, the ethic of God, the teaching of God, the power of God, and the salvation that he offers us. There is nothing more that you and I need than to encounter the living God. One of the ways that he strengthens and edifies his people is through his words. He has used his words to speak creation into existence, and he has used his words to draw humanity back to him after we have wandered away. And so Jesus comes on that rescue mission. He comes teaching and preaching and healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so as we're in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, we are going to hear from Jesus, particularly around what it means to pray and how to pray and how not to pray this morning. So uh, it's on page 761 in the Bibles around the room. If you don't have an app or don't have a Bible, um, take that black Bible in your hands or near you, take it home with you. It's our gift to you. No strings attached. We want you to have uh, this ancient present text in your possession. We want you to love it and to embrace it. This morning, we are going to consider this historic, heart-transforming, world-changing prayer, and we're going to do it in just one sermon. We're in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, page 761 in the Black Bibles around the room. In February, in January, in January and February of 2020, we took on the Lord's Prayer in four sermons. Uh, I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to take it on in one, which means that I'm only going to just draw out one facet, one, um, one side of the diamond. Uh, and that's going to be good enough because it's going to, to nourish us. But if you want to press in a little more fully into the Lord's Prayer and some of the background and draw um, your, yourself to those themes and draw those, uh, just embrace those themes more clearly, then go and find on Apple or, or Spotify or podcast in January and February of 2020 can do that. Um, in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, he, uh, he, Luke records that the disciples came to Jesus after hearing him pray, and they asked him to teach them how to pray. And then Luke gives us the Lord's Prayer. And so it's likely that the Lord's Prayer comes as a request. It comes as an answer to a request. So it is... Uh, that's what, th th this is Jesus' response to that request. So it's right for us to consider and then to pray this prayer as our model prayer. For it to give us some form to our prayers. It's handed directly to us by Jesus himself in 2021. How kind of him. It's a primary source prayer. It's not a prayer from a game of telephone over 20 centuries. We're hearing this content from the source himself. No other prayer has more influenced or shaped Jesus's people than this prayer that we refer, we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Um, the places that it leads us to in our relationship with God and the categories that this prayer opens up for us are sweeping and all-encompassing. 
Our Father knows what we need, and he invites us to pray. Jesus knows what we need, and he teaches us to pray. The Holy Spirit knows what we need, and he helps us pray. Your God loves your prayer. He wants to hear from his people. Read with me the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus kind of setting it up, kind of with the don'ts before he gets to the do's. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The praise of men is the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret or hidden in heaven, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. We prayed this together this morning. If you've got um, an ESV text open before you this morning, would you just pray this along with me right now? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then Jesus goes on to say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us through your word this morning? Would you open us up to a praying life? Would the the theme of condemnation and guilt and all of the shoulds, I should, should, should pray more, would that not be what sits on us this morning, but would be what sits on us and what leaves with us is this abiding notion that we can pray. We get to pray. Our Father loves to hear us come to him and express ourselves before him. Would that be what sits on us this morning? Please, by your power, do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want, to, um, I want to point out a couple of things just quickly by way of introduction to this prayer. You're going to see a theme of plurality in this, in this prayer. The, the word you, every time that it's used in this prayer, and even in the, 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 the preceding portion that begins to set it up, they're all plural in form. These are not individual. He's not addressing individuals only. He's addressing a community. This is a prayer that can be prayed alone for sure, but it's a prayer to be prayed together, and it's a prayer to be prayed with others in our minds, joined to other people in our minds. Um, I, I think of this prayer, each of the line in this prayer, almost like a file folder on your computer. Uh, you know, it's simple in form. It's simplistic there. It might just have a title to it, but when you double-click, what happens? Like it opens up a treasure trove underneath it simple on the outside, but it contains volumes of riches within. Um, so notice as we kind of move through this text, us and we and our and you, this is a, pray, a prayer that a community prays, must pray. One thing I also want you to notice is Father in this setup and in the prayer itself. 
Six times Matthew records for us the name, the title, the address, Father. What is this doing? What is Jesus doing with it? He's directing our attention to a specific person within the Trinity, within the Godhead, as theologians have called it for centuries, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is directing our attention to a specific person within the Trinity. Jesus prays his prayers directly to his Father. That's our foundation too. Um, Jews of the period would use exalted titles and exalted uh, addresses for God, things like sovereign Lord and king of the universe and most high. And there's nothing wrong with these things at all because they, they say something about who God is. But I think there is some danger in using those kind of far off titles because it can be a way that we kind of keep him at bay. And this title, this term of endearment, Father here, is meant to bring him close as we draw ourselves close. So when we start with Father, or as Jesus prayed in Aramaic, Abba, which is a familial term that means something like Dad or Papa, it's a term of reverence, but it's also a term of relational intimacy. When we use those terms in our prayer life, it draws us toward the one who draws us to himself. And so it is a title of familiarity. It's a title of closeness. And so, church, let's follow Jesus' lead and direct our prayers to our Father in the way that Jesus directed his prayers to his Father. He would say to his disciples, I'm going to my Father and your Father. We have one Father. So here's where we're going this morning. I'm going to give you a roadmap. Uh, just two points. Point number one, how, to, how not to pray according to Jesus. And point number two, how to pray according to Jesus. Pretty simple breakdown. Read some of the, the, the beginning text again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. So notice here, he's going to name kind of two categories of people. He's going to name the hypocrites, and then he's also going to name the Gentiles. The hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what you're doing that nobody else sees, we're even tempted to believe that he doesn't see it. He does see us. He does see what occurs in secret, and he will reward you. And when you pray, he moves on to the Gentiles here, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus is aiming at two kinds of people here, performers and pagans. Performers are all about themselves visibly, wanting to be seen by others. Um, the pagans are people who don't understand God. They're not only praying maybe to Yahweh, they don't, yet, they don't know him. They don't fully understand how he relates to humanity. But they're also not just praying to him, but they're praying to kind of a series of gods. They think that they're going to be heard for their many words. They're essentially covering their bases through their prayers. The hypocrites and performers here. Um, Jesus does not, as we read the Gospels, Jesus does not... Um, he does not display very much patience for ostentatious people. I didn't know what that word meant two weeks ago. The commentaries kept using this word ostentatious. I was like, what is that word? I've heard it before, but I don't know what it means. Ostentatious means showy, pretentious, offensive displays of self-importance. 
They're the people who are just putting themselves out there to be seen. They're wearing the things to be seen. They're driving the cars to be seen. They're puffing up when they are seen. That's what ostentatious means. Jesus takes aim at the religious rulers in Matthew's gospel in a big way in chapter uh, 23. He'll spend the entire chapter confronting publicly these religious rulers, the Pharisees and the scribes. These people had great power among the people of Israel, not just influential power, but also ruling power. And if you have a view of Jesus as kind of like the, the, the nice, like, conditioned flowing hair, and he's wearing a sash, and he's got his Birkenstocks on, and he's kind of like hippie Jesus, you know, never having hard words for people, you need to read Matthew chapter 23 because Jesus is courageous, taking on people who are, um, who are misleading the people of God, the most powerful people in his day socially. He would say this in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's one of his favorite words for the religious rulers is hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We need to hear this. You and I must not be like this. According to the real Jesus, you and I must not work to just build an appearance on the outside and not reveal what's going on on the inside. And so there's a gap between the two. We must cultivate lives, inner lives that also accord with our outer lives. This church does not have to be a place where people are pressured to fit in. This community does not have to be a place where people are pressured to fit in, where we compete and we try to out-eloquent one another in our praying. We don't have to be like that. You know what can be helpful when it comes to public prayers? Praying short, straight-to-the-heart prayers. When we pray publicly, letting our words be few and getting right to the point. Father, help. I, Father, I am angry, and I don't know what to do. I cannot seem, Father, to get in front of my temptation and my sin patterns. I feel helpless. Father, I feel hopeless. I don't know what to do. How you and I are doing in secret is how you and I are really doing. How you and I are doing in secret is how you and I are really doing. And our Father sees all of that and has compassion on us. He wants what's going on to be revealed by us, what's going on inside of us to be revealed by us. Jesus will speak here about pagans too. He'll warn uh, the people of the day and people of the future not to babble on and on, just consciously or unconsciously believing that the quantity of our words, the quantity of our prayers will convince God to actually hear us. Um, I fall into the trap personally of, of considering, you know, an hour of like, kind of like mind-wandering, mediocre-ish prayer I, I fall into the trap of considering that more valuable than five minutes of like heartfelt spew. 
in some ways. I know that's a graphic way to say it, but like you know those moments like that guttural prayer where you're just, you're at the end and you need help. There's a legalistic mindset lurking in me that believes that the quantity of my words or the quantity of time is what makes the difference. And so I and we, I think, subtly believe the Father isn't inclined to hear us if we've forgotten to pray over the last few days or hours. But what has Jesus been aiming at in the Sermon on the Mount? He's consistently aiming at our hearts, not our performance. He's consistently wanting the real us to please stand up. Like that is who he is asking for. Jesus would say, he knows what you need before you ask him. Pray to the Father who sees in secret, for he knows what you need before you ask him. So for some of us, that actually is a challenge to our praying because we'll say, if he already knows what I'm gonna pray, then what's the point? Have you asked that question? I think you probably have. Many of us have. But what if his insistence for us to pray, what if it's not actually about the transfer of information at all? What if it's actually about relational connection? What if the fatherly heart of God wants to hear you? He wants to hear you say it. What if the fatherly heart of God wants to hear from you? This, for those of us who have children, uh, this is clear in our parenting. Our kids, we we often know as parents, uh, we often know what our kids need before they have verbally expressed it to us. Moms, you've got the spidey sense. Dads, you kind of have it. We come in and out of it, you know, like... But we know like where hunger is in play, where a lack of sleep is in play, where we, we know these things. We don't really need the information. Oftentimes we don't really need them to come and tell us what they need. But when they do come and tell us what they love or what they like or what they need, we make space. Oftentimes parents, especially it's true of younger kids, and, and, and we ask them to tell us more. We want to draw them out. We appreciate hearing from them. We don't just hush them or want them to be quiet because we already know. We make space for them to express their desires. We make space for them to express those kind of core desires within them or more surface desires. And this exchange is where the relationship comes to life in humanity. When a, when a husband and a wife, a friend and a friend, a student, whoever it might be, when the exchange and the talking and the sharing of the heart begins to come in play and exchange, when it moves from surface to subsurface, this is where the, the, the relationship really truly comes to life. Your father knows everything about you and he holds space for you and asks you to come with it. Our Lord Jesus teaches us who our Father is most clearly and most accurately. He knows him best. So we can kind of miss who the Father is in the Old Testament. In, in the, uh, like his Father, we can kind of miss his fatherly nature in the Old Testament. Um, when we look at, to the Old Testament to show us something of the Father heart of God, um, it's, the, the, the times that that comes up in the Old Testament is surprisingly rare, only about 15 direct occurrences where, father, where, where our Father will name himself the Father of Israel or he'll name himself as the Father of specific in, individuals, like the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the New Testament, the fatherly aspect of who God is comes to life in a pretty radical way. It takes a totally different turn with Jesus. 
in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are the Gospels that sound and seem a lot like one another. Uh, Father, as a term for God, occurs about 65 times. In John's Gospel alone, it occurs around 100 times. If you want to change the way you see God as Father, read John's Gospel looking for God as Father because he is consistently uh, recording Jesus' words and prayers and how he addresses the Father. Um, in, In Paul's letters, Father occurs over 40 times. In the general epistles like James and others, It occurs 25 times. Father occurs in doxologies and greetings and prayers, blessings, thanksgivings, creeds, exhortations. It's all over your New Testament. Your New Testament will help us know, will help you know your Father. Your New Testament will help you know what he's like. Now, here's my second point, how to pray according to Jesus. Jesus gives us some instructions on how to pray. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, provide for our needs, forgive us our debts, ways that we have sinned against you as your children, and also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. You'll see a footnote in your Bibles there too, there's in later manuscripts of the Lord's Prayer Sometimes it will add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. This is right and good for you and I to pray. It's just not in the earliest manuscripts, which is why it's not right there on the page, probably in your copy of the Bible. This is a model prayer. If we're willing to see it like this, Jesus is teaching you and I how to pray. If we're willing to see it, He's teaching you and I how to pray. Theologians have a lot of agreement right here too. This prayer can be prayed just as it is, word for word. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But also, it can be, it, it can be, each line can be seen as a container containing vast riches, like springboards for us expressing all of the ways that God's name is holy and can be seen as holy. It can be, they can, each line can function as a catalyst for our prayers. Prayer just defined as communicating with God. The Lord's Prayer can kind of be broken down if you want to look at it in this way in, um, in, in two simple sets with three petitions in each set. The first, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, deals with who God is deals with what he's like. The second, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven and lead us not into into temptation has to do with understanding what we need, where we fit in, the created order, creator first, creation second. And each of these six petitions has a principle underneath them, right? I almost, actually, I don't think I've ever done this, but for you, for your entertainment this morning, I've alliterated them. So every single one of them, there's like a category. They start with the word R. I hope you don't struggle to say the word R because if you have a speech impediment, I suppose that could be difficult. Reverence, renewed worship, reliance, repentance and restored relationships, and resistance. I want to just try to unpack some of the principles here. So it's going to be brief. It's going to be a bit of a flyover. 
But I want us to hear this. Closely following Jesus' lead in our praying leads us to follow Jesus more closely. Closely following Jesus' lead in our praying leads us, leads you and I to follow Jesus more closely. Praying like Jesus leads us to become more like Jesus. Now, why is YouTube so powerful when it comes to learning how to do things? Think about it. Like, it opens up the way to imitation, does it not? Like, I just put headlights in my truck, and they're, like, really difficult to get to. You've got to get to them under the, the, the fender wells. And so I, I YouTubed it, and I see this guy doing it, and I hear him describing it, and I learned by watching him. Um, Ten years ago, a friend of mine named Saxon, he shot his first deer on Canfield Mountain, um, we were part of a we were part of a group Bible a men's Bible study. There were like six or seven of us. The the remainder of the group were in Dalton Gardens. It was like dusk. He said he was going to go out and try and hunt. We said go do your thing. So it's like dusk. He shoots a deer on top of Canfield Mountain, but he'd never shot a deer. And then he realized that he didn't know how to field dress a deer at that moment. And so it's like getting dark. He's not got a lot of tools, but he's he's prepared, but he doesn't actually have the knowledge. And so he called us, and we were just like you're on your own, bro. Like, I'm not going to try and find you right now. It's like eight o'clock at night or something like that, or seven, seven o'clock at night, something like that. And, uh, and so somebody in our group said, why don't you just YouTube it? And he had a smartphone on him and he YouTubed it and he walked off of the mountain with fresh meat. There's power in following and imitating another person who models something for you. We give him so much grief about that still to this day. He has no idea he's a sermon illustration right now. <laughs> I might send him a text message. Love you, Sax. Reverence. This first line here in imitation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means holy or sacred. From the Jewish perspective, a person's name represents who they are. Jesus teaches us to pray, sacred be your name, holy be your name. This isn't actually a request that the Father's name would become more holy, that his name would become more sacred or perfect or righteous. It's a request that people, that humanity would see and experience God's holiness for what it is, that mankind would come to see Father for who he really is. It's a request for our sight to be calibrated. Everything starts here, church. To say, let your name, in our prayers, to, to have the kind of attitude that says, let your name be treated with reverence signals the starting point. You, Father, before me. No matter how many fits you and I throw, we are not the center of the universe. And we throw fits repeatedly when we do not get our way. The one who said, let there be light is the center of the universe. So I want to ask this question. Do you come to Father with reverence and respect? Ignoring him is the pinnacle of disrespect. Avoiding him is a pinnacle of disrespect. When this desire to count him as holy, to count him as worthy begins to sink in. Something else begins to follow. There's order here. There's progression here of growth and maturity. 
when it sinks in, when reverence sinks in for us, something else follows, which is renewed worship. We can say with authenticity, your kingdom come, or we can begin to say it, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God most clearly understood as it relates to the New Testament and the way Jesus describes it is God's rule over the hearts of men and women. And so when we pray something like your kingdom come, your will be done, we are asking that his rule and reign would invade and perpetuate among the hearts of men and women and would turn people to repentance and would turn people to a new way of life. And so we want, when we say your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we want his rule and his reign to expand in volume, which means we want more and more and more people to come to understand who he is and to love him. But we also want it to expand in scope. We want it to sink and to saturate more deeply within us. And as it happens, as we begin to see the, the Father as reverent and as, as our will begins to bend to his will, we, we begin to recognize or we can know that we are in the process of deep renewal within. To renew literally means to be made new again, to return to an original state. And so re renewed worship means the church corporately recovers what made her in the first place. She, renew, she, she recovers her sense of worship. Worship is not just what is happening when we sing or when we read or when we study the Bible or when we get together in Christian community. That's not just when worship is happening. Worship happens every time you and I take a bite of food and savor it and give thanks to God for it. Give thanks to God for our taste buds that allow us to enjoy it. It happens, worship happens when we lose a loved one and we ask the Spirit of God to sustain us and to walk us through the process of grief. Worship happens in any moment in our life, small and big, where we recognize God for who he is and we give him thanks and we ask for his help. All of the moments of, of our lives are invitations to give God thanks for his presence that fills heaven and is here on earth. The more that we revere him, the more that our worship is renewed, the more we begin to rely on him in the day-to-day -day stuff of our lives. And so, give us this day our daily bread. As you and I grow up into maturity as disciples of Jesus, our eyes are, they open up to all of the ways that we have a present Father who provides for us. Um, we modern folks think that bread originates in the display rack at Winco, right? Or that meat just magically shows up in the cooler, or that the salad is just magically stocked and watered by the sprinklers in the produce section. Right? And this is an, an unfair caricature, I think, here, but... Um, I think the farmer is even tempted to think that bread originates with the grain that he plants. But it doesn't. Who's created the grain and the ability for the grain to reproduce year after year? And who's created the water that, that, that nourishes it? And who has created the land that it is planted within? 
That's all from God himself. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, what, did you, what do you have that you did not receive? And, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That's a, a kind of funny way of him saying, like, you've got the thing, but you feel like you're the one who's responsible for having the thing. Why are you boasting as if you did it, you came up with it, you procured it? It's all gift. We don't build or grow or earn anything that we did not first receive from the hand of our Father. And so church, I want to ask, do you see this in life? Maybe you need recalibration around the basic necessities, the things that you appreciate and love in life, whether it's food or whether it's relationship or whether it's transportation or whether it's work or whether it's income, what, what, what enjoyment, hobbies, the, the, the tools that you use to pursue your hobbies. Like, do you see these things as gift? Because it is. It's 100% grace to you, even for non-believers. The common grace, things that non-believers enjoy, are still all gifts from a good Father who provides for His people. And as we see Him as He is, and as we rely upon Him, The process of ongoing repentance, not just the first mode of repentance when you came to believe and were justified for the very first time, but an ongoing activity of recognizing folly and turning our trust, turning in trust rather, to the Father again begins to occur. An ongoing uh, activity of repentance, which will also lead us to horizontal restoration in our relationships too. So there's this line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Um, We've talked a fair amount over the last year of repentance being the grace of God to us. Repentance is the opportunity that Jesus continually gives us to turn to him and to thereby experience the love of our father and his father. What Jesus is talking about in the word debt here, he's probably praying this prayer in Aramaic. Um, The word debt is often used to describe sin in Aramaic. What Jesus is talking about when it comes to our debts is the sin that we commit as his children. We don't stop being sons and daughters of God as we sin against him. But as we sin against him, as we neglect him, as we rebel, whether it's just outright rebellion or whether it's irreverence or whatever it might be, whatever way that we fall short of his glory and sin against him, it does have effect on the closeness of of the relationship. It has a way of kind of breaking fellowship and creating distance. You know this because of the way that you feel after months and months and months of neglecting prayer. neglecting the Lord. You you recognize that there's a sense that some fellowship has been broken there. He has never left, you and I have. Matthew zooms in on this petition for forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. So I'm just gonna read this parable. It speaks for itself, Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be done here in about five minutes or so. But just let me read this, and it'll give us this picture of of what it means to um, receive forgiveness that then animates our forgiveness toward other people. And Jesus, in verses 14 and 15 of the Lord's Prayer right here, it's kind of an addendum to this line in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. 14 and 15 is kind of like an addendum there. It's kind of like some, some extra commentary there. This is what is happening 
um, in Matthew chapter 18. It's a parable that Jesus teaches about the unforgiving servant. Verse 23, Jesus will say, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven must be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about 20 years wages. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for payments to be made. And so he was going to be removed from his master's property and his state. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He did not make him pay the debt, he forgave the debt. But when that very same servant who was forgiven went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about a day's wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy then on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is Jesus's word to us this morning. D.A. Carson, I think, nails this, in my opinion. Um, the point of this parable that Jesus teaches here, it, it, it doesn't seem to hinge on the sequence of how it works, ra- but rather hinges on the attitude that a person displays, recognizing ourselves as needing forgiveness from God, and then as we have been forgiven by Christ, so we welcome and we forgive others as well. There is no forgiveness for one who does not forgive. How could it be otherwise, D.A. Carson says? How could it be otherwise? His unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that he has never repented, that he hasn't understood the forgiveness of God. The final movement in this prayer, resistance. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. As you and I, as we develop maturity as followers of Jesus, our eyes widen to the influence of evil, to the folly of our unresisted temptation. The nature of sin, the nature of our rebellion against God within us, the nature of it to begin with is that it deceives us. It is never telling us the truth. It is never wooing us with total truth. The devil is not responsible for all of the sin that you and I do. We are responsible for the sin that we commit. He is the author of sin. He is the father of lies. And he does bait his hook with our temptations. Beware of the baited hook. We need to be led by our Father. We need to be shown the way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it's kind of a famous passage on overcoming temptation. 
where the Apostle Paul will say, don't, don't be tempted even to think that you're the only one who struggles with this. You're not. What you're experiencing is common to all people. So know that in your temptations, even you are not alone. You are not the only one. And, the, and then Paul exhorts his, the church to call out to the Father to show us a way out, to show us an escape hatch, so to speak, a way to resist. Now, we don't always follow the way. We don't always call upon him. We, we often give in to our temptations, but the nature of God towards his people is that he will provide a way. And so that thought, don't do it, is actually him bearing witness in our consciences, don't, don't, regret is coming. He will show us a way. Imagine the outcome if you and I practiced this prayer for the next 20 years and were to, to allow it to direct our praying. Praying like Jesus will form us to be more like Jesus. Our Father knows exactly what we need, and our ultimate need is to grow closer to Him and to grow more like His Son, our Lord. Here's the last point in the final sentence. Prayer is the pathway for intimacy with God. Start where you are today. As you start praying, as you jumpstart a praying life again, even today, maybe it's through the Lord's prayers, you just start to soak in it and practice it and let it be the springboard to animate your words and your thoughts and your demeanor toward the Lord. Start where you are today. Don't start where you think you should be, please. Start where you are. And then tomorrow, start where you are. And then the next day, start where you are. Start where you are. Love you, church. Your Father loves you. He wants to hear from you. Father, would you draw your people to yourself, please? We do love you. We long for your presence. I think the majority of people in the room would probably describe a deep desire for a praying life and the struggle of forgetting and neglecting is so, so real for us. Father, would you help? Would you teach us to pray? Would you help us to love your son? Would you help us to not see it as boring? And would you also help, help us to endure in prayer and to not just pray once and expect it all to like be magical as if you're a genie in that moment, but you have greater purposes that you're working out in our lives, so help us to be patient and to, to put on eyes that see you and that are willing to see your work in the world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.